that thread, I see that thread going through everything. So the sense that what I do with my life really makes a difference. Like I have so many things that bolster that idea for me. It's so clear that my life matters. I'm Tanya, and you are listening to Episode 5, Season 2 of Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss spiritual ideas in human terms. Today's episode is sponsored by Mendel and Goldie Tridel, in honor of the birthdays of Yeshaya and Goldie. Happy birthday! The hope is that the coming year be one of learning, growth, and meaningful living. Thank you, Mendel and Goldie, for making today's episode happen. I want to introduce you to a platform called Patreon. Patreon is a platform where people can directly support the work that they want to see more of in the world. If you enjoy the podcast and want to become a paying subscriber, I want to invite you to visit patreon.com slash humanandholy. For as little as $5 a month, you can support current and future Human and Holy projects, as well as gaining access to some member-exclusive perks. I know, it's the best part. (laughs) Visit patreon.com slash humanandholy, and I'll include the link in the show notes too. Okay, on to the episode. Today, Vivi Darren defines the Chathila a river in a way that I found so resonant. She says, do not be consumed with the obstacle. Do not be so consumed with finding holes in the obstacle for you to pass through. Instead, focus on the goal. Look at the horizon. To begin with, a river. To begin with, focus forward, ahead. The obstacle does not disappear, but it shrinks as you grow beyond it. Join us as Vivi so generously shares her story and wisdom. Hi, my name is Vivi Darren. My husband and I are blessed to have been shluchim in our 48th year, Baruch Hashem, and Be'ezus Hashem, looking to many, many, many more years, Gesundheit, hate of living with this awesome responsibility and awesome privilege which is the source of so much blessing in my life. My husband is a regional shliach, so we've been basically in western Massachusetts and basically Connecticut. Amazing. I didn't realize that we're neighbors. We are neighbors. Yes. We're in the same we state are. right now. Beautiful. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so I'm really excited. I'm excited to explore this idea of L'Chatchila, a river with you through your life story. If you could give us a little bit of context about what your life has been like, and we'll use that as the foundation for what comes next. I think the best way for me to describe it, it's actually a description that I gave to one of my children about 20-something years ago when we were going through a lot of challenges. And this particular child had said something like, 
it was a very negative comment about what our life is. And I said to her, but really to myself and something that I really tried to anchor myself in, we are, Baruch Hashem, very blessed. We have a very blessed life. And in that life, we have had challenges, and some of them have been really awful. But our life is a blessed life. I would say that in many ways, I lived a very charmed life. In many ways, I still do. But I was never rushed immediately and closely and right in my own life with really, really rough situations. And then I was. So I think that the nourishment that I got when the things that were that were given to me, the things that I learned, the things that I saw, the things that I heard, the things that I experienced, all of that was there for me, even in ways that I didn't know. A few days ago, a friend who I studied with here in Stanford, a woman in the community who has some background in Torah study, she asked me a question. I had never thought of the question. She said, why is it that all of the Berchus HaShachar in the morning blessings that we say they're all present tense? And this is Hashem does this and, you know, close the, 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 those who need and, and straightens the bent over and all the things that Hashem does, 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 does. This is only one that's in past tense. Says, and there are some versions of the Siddur that have it in present tense, but most versions have it in past tense. And that is She'asoli Kol Tzarki, who has made for me everything that I need. Why is that one in past tense? I said, I, I don't know the answer. And to be honest, I never thought of the question. Two days later, I'm reading Esther Zirkin's book, Where's the Daughter I Raised, which is phenomenal. And right there, it was like two o'clock in the morning. I was I was ready to pick up the phone and call my friends. Here, here it is. And I don't remember who it was that she was quoting, but exactly that question. And that Shasali Kartsaki, that the Abishter gave me everything that I need to deal with a situation and to deal with it successfully. Not necessarily in a way that's going to feel good. That's a whole different bracha. But everything that I need to do what I have to do in the situation. I was ready to pick up the phone at two o'clock in the morning and call her. Look, look, I right. found, I found. And basically, when we're in a situation, we don't always see it. It's only with the gift of hindsight, we look back and we realize how many things the Ebishter put into place for us. And what was the Hashkah Pratis that I saw this and I heard this and I studied this and all of these things that were there before that the Ebishter had put into my life before I needed them, or before I knew that I needed them. And looking back, I realized that, I love the saying here, we're not mushrooms. We didn't spring up after the rain. We are cultivated plants. <laughs> you know, we've been, we've been given so much and we've been nourished with so much. But sometimes it's only with the gift of hindsight that we can look back and see, ah, so that's where that came from. Right. Basically, we were blessed with eight children four of whom are Baruch Hashem living and healthy and they should be healthy with they and their families and their children. Four of our children were born with an Ashkenazic Jewish syndrome, which is a syndrome, it's a, it's a collection of symptoms. So none of them in and of themselves are necessarily a disease, but it's a collection of characteristics of symptoms and 
One of them is a high rate of malignancy. And not everybody has everything, thankfully, but there's also often another characteristic of upper respiratory issues. And three of our children did develop those malignancies and passed away from them. And the fourth one, who is probably the best known, that's our Rifki, Rifki Darren, Rifki Darren Berman. You Google her, you'll find the most incredible videos that inspire me and just always. Yeah. Rifki had the upper respiratory issues from earliest childhood, literally from when she was born and eventually needed a lung transplant, which she fought for to get it. And I remember sitting in a doctor's office with her, and the doctor was explaining why his program would not accept her for the lung transplant because of the underlying syndrome, and she could develop, who knows, you know, the, the malignancies. And she was arguing with him. What do you mean? You could give lungs to somebody else, and they could go outside and get hit by a truck. So what do you, how do you know what's going to happen? You know, you, what? And she did not let go. And he was like, are you in law school? <laughs> but we, we him that would give her the lungs and she did get them in Baruch Hashem. She got them and her dream of getting married was fulfilled. Wow. And she impacted and continues to impact people with her spirit and her focus. Our second child who was born right after we went on Schlichus, and he was our second, and he was the first one of the four to be born with this syndrome. Nobody knew what it was at the time. This was 1974. I spent years explaining to doctors. He wasn't diagnosed until he was three and a half. Wow. And after that, it just wasn't known. It's very, very, very rare. In any case, but one of the characteristics is very small physical growth. And he was born small, and I thought I have to do something to fatten him up and everything that I tried wasn't working. And I got scared. I was really, really, really scared. And I wrote to the Rebbe and one of the things that the Rebbe answered me, there were you know, obviously many letters and many answers. But in that first letter, the Rebbe said to me, I asked the Rebbe for guidance in life. And the Rebbe said, According, you know, you want guidance for life, this is what you do. Live according to Shulchan Aruch. And I want to just say that that in itself was, to my surprise, a very liberating guidance. Because what it showed me is that there may be times that you don't feel the motivation, that you don't feel inspired, that you don't feel like this is what you want to do. But you go through the motions, do what you have to do. It's okay to be on automatic pilot. It's not a way to live all the time to just stay on automatic pilot. But knowing that when I'm not in a place where I feel like, oh, wow, about whatever mitzvah it is that I'm facing, that I'm on solid ground, do it, do it. And don't keep your finger on your pulse. Do I really want to do this mitzvah? Do I not want to? Just, it's okay. The second piece, B'tachem Hashem. for about 40 years, I thought that that was a three-part answer. B'tachem, and the piece about Simcha. 
And I was in the middle of an interview with Mishpacha magazine about four or five years ago. And in the middle of the interview, I started like shrieking, oh, 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 wait, I just realized something. I just realized something. It's not three-part answer. It's really, B'tachem Ba'ashem, the Rebbe said, Shulchan Aruch, Kailo B'tachem Ba'ashem. The Shulchan Aruch includes having B'tachem. The last piece, Simcha Ba'avedase, the part that jumped out at me over the years, I should say, didn't jump out right away. It took me actually a long time to realize how much depth was in this answer. I at first saw it, I was 26, I saw it in a very superficial way. And I don't know if I was expecting that it's some exotic, I don't know, you do this and do this and get up in the middle of the night and wearing this. I don't know what I was expecting, but it took me a long time to realize how over these years I have never found a situation in life that did not fit into that guidance. In my opinion, there's two kinds of simcha. There's the kind of simcha that the Ebeshter pours bracha in your life in an open way if you're nominally, emotionally healthy and awake and aware of what's going on, you know, the, all of the, the things in life that are, that are, you know, nobody has to sit down and say, now listen, you have to know Babish is good and this is a good thing. You know, Bishatevo Mitzlachas, when a, a, a healthy baby is born and a healthy mother, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to have somebody or a, or a huge Talmud Chacham to figure out that this is an occasion for Simcha. It jumps out at you. But the Rebbe's answer to me was Simcha Ba'avedase. We're talking about Simcha that's not necessarily connected to happy circumstances. It's Simcha Ba'avedase, joy in serving him. Now, for me, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. My parents were Shluchim. Growing up in Nashville, it's part of the Bible Belt. So I'm hypersensitive to phrases like serving the Lord. You know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> It, it doesn't these, do it for you. They, these phrases, they carry a lot of bags. Like, whoa, 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 wait a second. So they <laughs> does say, like, I had to play with that. But the first thing was the idea that the kind of simcha of happy things happening that the Ebishter just gives to you, yeah, you have to have the brains to hold it with both hands. Simcha ba'avedasi is when it's not so obvious and when it's not coming from the circumstances, but what are you generating? And how do you find that simcha? I know for myself, my father translated two parts of Tanya. My deep, dark secret for many, many years was that I didn't understand what is everybody making such a big fuss about. I could not connect. I would learn little pieces of Tanya here, little pieces there. In my years in Beisrifka, it was not yet part of curriculum. And I could never even say the words out loud because I was too embarrassed to even face it for myself. What's the big deal? What are they talking about? I had these big ideas. They're in Tanya. For me, they were inaccessible. Mer Shalat al-Halev, I knew the story, like we all have heard the story of Amesha Meislish, who Napoleon put his hand on his heart, and he didn't get upset. I could never do that. So obviously, Mer Shalat al-Halev has nothing to do with me. And then I started hearing like these ideas that break it up for simple people like me who need to have things spelled out. Nobody makes you feel anything. There's a stimulus. Something happens. You hear, you read, you see something. And then there's a gap. And then there's your response. What are you going to do with that information? 
in that gap is all of our power and all of our freedom. I didn't understand it when I was sitting with a Tanya with English, with the translation. These are all stages in what had to happen until I was listening to Rabbi Shays Taub's tapes in the CDs that we used to have <laughs> after cassettes were gone. Then we had CDs and now those are gone and I can't keep up with all the technology, but okay. I'm listening to these CDs and I'm like, I'm jumping out of my skin. I get, oh, oh, this is what it is. Now I understand Meir Shalat Ahalev means that I have the ability to create the lens that I want to use to see things. I'm going to decide something's going to happen and I'm going to have, first, have to even notice the gap. Now, how am I going to deal with it? What's my response going to be? Fast forward, I got this answer from the Rebbe in 1975. So it was almost 20 years later. This was in Av, Tavshin and Dalit, 1994. It was literally in the month after Gimel Tamas. And our youngest child, who was not yet four, Shlaimi, was diagnosed with a pediatric kidney tumor and needed immediate surgery. My husband was away, and I couldn't reach him easily. He was in Russia, which was very, very difficult to, to make contact then. And I was with the doctor, with Shlaimi, and with a few of my older children. And I was walking down the hall after just sitting me and the doctor. And I'm thinking those doors are going to open up and I have to know how am I walking out? My kids are going to see me. How am I walking out? I don't know if I consciously was thinking about the Rebbe's answer from at that point. It was almost 20 years before that. But the idea of Trachtut Vitzangut was something that I knew, and again, something that I had a, a struggled to connect to. But I knew the outcome that I wanted to see. I knew the outcome that I wanted to see. I wanted to see this little boy healthy. If I knew for sure, without a question of a doubt, if it was an absolute, absolute fact that I'm going to see that outcome, how would that affect how I act now? How would I act now? And in that light, I could take a positive attitude. Now, without translating and going into the, all of the background and the philosophy and so on of this idea of l'chatchila river, I refer to my, my children and my grandchildren are my research staff. So I put out the question to them, you know, how do you translate this idea? What does it mean to you? How do you connect to it? And one of my grandchildren he said, you know, we always talk about it. We're focused on the obstacles. You go over the obstacles, around the obstacles, through the obstacles. But how do I deal with the hurdles that are in my path? And not to pay attention, he said, let's focus on the goal. That maybe what the Rebbe is telling us here is, don't lose sight of the goal. Don't let your present situation define how you see where you are, where you're going. From the outset, keep your eye on the goal. Keep your eye on what you want to achieve. Nice. I want to ask you, can you explain the way the concept of the Chathila River is traditionally defined? Because I think that that will give so much more meaning to what you just said. It gives context. 
literally translated, lechatchila means to begin with at the outset. Ariba, go over. Right. I've heard two versions. I've heard if you can't go through, then go as mekenetadurch. If you can't get through the obstacles, then just go over them. And the other version is if you can't go under the obstacles, then go over them. And that's, you know, do, try this and this and this, and then get to it. And that the Rebbe is saying, I'm saying to begin with, go over. To begin with, go over. Don't get, and, and now, now I'm editing. This is just my understanding, my interpretation of it. But don't get lost in where you are and the step by step by step by step of how to get to. You know your vision of where you want to go has to be so clear that that's how you see where you are. Nice. You see your present through the lens of the future. We need the past. We're not, again, we're not mushrooms. We're not coming from nowhere. And we have to build on the past. But we also, we're not prisoners of it. And we have to be very careful not to get too caught up in nostalgia. Amo. I think that the previous Deva said once that Amo is Amalek. Nice. Amo, if, if we're glorifying, oh, the good old days and how things were, uh, 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 uh. That can lead to amalek, which is coldness. In other words, it becomes distant. It's not me. But if you're saying, lechatchila a river, to begin with, at the outset, you're facing the situation. There's something in front of you. There are hurdles. There's always going to be hurdles. And you deal with it this way. You deal with it that way. You go this way. Right. What my grandson pointed out, he said, everybody agrees. In the end, you're going to the goal. Right. You're going to that goal. But the question is, how are you getting there? To begin with, you're at the outset, focus on the goal. Don't ever lose sight of it. I love that description. It's so beautiful. The idea of meaning that you're not getting so overly consumed with the obstacle, but you're focusing ahead. Like you have your gaze on the horizon. So therefore you're just, you're going. And my question to you then is, does mean bypassing the struggle? Because when you speak about your life and you speak about the experience that you have had and continue to have, I don't sense any type of emotional bypassing where there's this like, no, in a really beautiful way. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like you're just glossing over what your experience has been. And at the same time, you're saying that Lechatchila River has been one of the strongest companions that you've had on this journey. So I'm wondering how that coexists, the human pain and suffering that is very real and seeing that there's this bigger goal that I'm working towards. And that is why I'm not overly consumed in the obstacle. A hundred percent. And it's, there's absolutely no self-delusion or no fooling yourself about where you are. You're in a situation, you have to know exactly where you are, but you have to know what the limits of that situation, what, what they are. You know, at the beginning, I was saying something about that the prepared for me what I needed before. And in our case, I, I said before that our slamming was, was diagnosed in August of 94, and a huge, huge experience in my life that something that nourishes me till today was my aunt and my uncle, my father's youngest sister, Sarivishka Sasankin, and her husband, Rabbi Avramo Sasankin. They're incredible, incredible people. And in March of 1994, their son, who was 18 at the time, Nachum, 
was one of the Bachim who was in the van that was shot on the, he was shot on the Brooklyn Bridge. Unfortunately, one of the Bachim passed away a few days later, Ari Halberstam. Another one was hurt fairly mildly and another one seriously. Those two you know, were expected from the beginning to make a full recovery. Nahum took a bullet to the head and he was extremely, extremely serious condition. And we were close by. We were already living in Stanford. We came to the hospital right away. This was on a Tuesday. My aunt and uncle came right away from Eretz so They got here like around dawn on Thursday morning. My aunt got off of the plane. And of course, the, you know, the ubiquitous, uh, the television, the reporters and the newspaper reporters. And then I, I have the clippings, I, you know, that I kept from the newspaper articles with the microphone in the face, you know, with their questions. From the first minute, she's talking about lists. She's making lists. And what, what kind of lists? She's making lists of people to invite to the wedding. He is going to get better, and he is going to get married. And she's, give me your name for the list. Invite him to the wedding. So I learned a few things. I learned one thing was that the ability of a person to not only create their own attitude, but to create the attitude of everybody around them, to shape the attitude surrounding the situation. She created an atmosphere of optimism and positivity, and that gave the doctors room to work. They had one, a very difficult experience with the doctor, and without going into all of the details right now, which is, it's a fascinating story, but my uncle he was the only one who was not at all phased by what this doctor said. And he said, like, if he has something to say to help our child, help our son heal, then we have to listen to what he says. But he's not a Navi. And he explained at other times, you know, where, where the Rebbe spoke about that the Gemara says, permission is given to the doctor to heal. So one of the things that the Rebbe said about that is that the Torah is recognizing the expertise of the doctor. It doesn't say that any person can come and say. There is that expertise. And, but the Rebbe was very, very strong about this. The physician is only there to talk about healing. He's not a wow. prophet. He has no right to any opinion of anything the opposite of life, of anything that's not connected to life. It's not in his hands. It's not his responsibility. And he's not needed to talk about that. But that was something that was in my mind. And when we had a situation with Shlemy where it was very, very difficult, the doctor walked into the room after one of his surgeries and he said, you know, it's a very, very poor prognosis. I said, stop right there. I'm not asking you for a prognosis. We're not asking you to be profit. The only place for numbers is if you want to say that this medicine works 20% of the time and this one works 99% of the time. Numbers has a place in, in deciding how to treat. But we're not asking you to make predictions. What can you say that would help him get better? And his shoulders relaxed. And he told people later, the Darren's made me a better doctor. Because he had his place. Where was that coming from? So I'd say like the Lechatchila Ariba is like that lens of what does Tyre say about this situation? And I had been gifted by watching them deal with Nachum's situation. 
seven years almost to the day after the shooting, I stood on the steps of 770 during Nachum's Chuppah, and I was wow. standing next to the surgeon who operated on him. Wow. told us later that when he spoke to the family that first day, when it was just brothers and sisters and cousins, and he said the truth was I didn't think he had any chance at that point, but I saw how strong the family was. I didn't have the heart to say anything differently. So I'm interested to know, what is that goal that you are looking at in your life that is great enough for you to be able to overcome the obstacles that Hashem gives? We hear a lot today about empowerment. I spent many years in early childhood education, and I came to the realization that being able to explain a concept, any concept, we're talking about entire concepts, to be able to explain it to a child means if you can't explain it to a child, then you don't really understand it. And if you can explain it satisfactorily, then you do. There's a couple of things that come together. One, the image that the Rebbe referenced so many times that the Rambam gives of seeing the world as being exactly even between the good things that happen and the not good things. And that one good, one mitzvah, one Feel one one something good that one person does tips the balance not only for themselves but for the whole world. So that sense of that I matter, you know, and putting that you know in the light of like that Viktor Frankl idea of you have meaning. There isn't ever a question that my life has meaning. Something that I for years was able to hold on to even when I wasn't so great with opening svarim regularly was hayemiyim. And I'm passionate about Hayemian. And the Rebbe wrote this in the middle of the war. And the question that the Rebbe opens that book with is, what have I done and what am I doing to lessen the birth pangs of the arrival of Mashiach who is coming? The Rebbe made it very clear that as far as any things that have to happen, everything that have to, that had to happen for the world, that's done. What does it mean that it's done? And we don't have to come up with new ideas, with new fundamental approaches. It's always different ways of how to PR something, how to make it, get it out there to, we don't see the whole world doing something yet. So obviously there are better ways than what we're doing to get the message out. But we don't need to look for new messages. And if they ever said there's no explanation that we have of why it hasn't happened, so it's totally futile for me to try and speculate on that. And I'm not interested. We don't have a calendar for Mashiach coming. The only calendar that I have is today. But the real question for me, and it has been you know, 30 years ago that I spoke about this topic, you have to do, that it's not enough to, you know, you have a Rebbe, you have this, you have to do. And that thread, I see that thread going through everything. So the sense that what I do with my life really makes a difference. Like I have so many things that bolster that idea for me. It's so clear that my life matters. And over the years, the sense of like, so, so what is that goal? That picture of what the world should look like. What should the world look like? I feel like sometimes if I had to give a synonym for Mashiach, for what the world should look like, the word I would choose is normal. Normal. What is normal? 
Normal means a world happy, healthy, whole families, happy and healthy materially, physically, spiritually, emotionally, in all the aspects of our humanity, in our connection with ourselves, in our connection with others. That's normal. That's the way it's supposed to be. We are so hardwired to look for that without even knowing it. It's it's so deeply within us, within every human being, and certainly didn't have that. And that the push from that picture has to be, so what am I doing? So every circumstance that I'm in can be a means of tapping into that. Never in denial of the challenges that we're facing. That's not looking positive, at least in my opinion. But I can decide what am I going to focus on. I can decide what am I going to give credence to. And one of the corollaries, by the way, we were talking before about the doctors, that they're not supposed to be prophets. And when I need to make a decision, I need to have all the whatever facts that I have to have of making the best decision. And there's guidance from the Rebbe on that. But I need to know that my role is where I keep my focus, that I also don't dwell on, well, it might be this, it might be that, it might be the other, to think about any possible negative outcome of the situation. The goal of staying focused on the goal is something that comes up on a daily basis in life. You mentioned how the goal for you is how the world should look and your role that matters in bringing that goal to fruition of bringing the world to that place of wholeness and normalcy, as you call it. How would you say that keeping your eye on the prize, (laughs) staying focused on that goal is something that's helping you currently in whatever you are currently dealing with in your life to I like that you said that, that it's an empowering idea that allows us to choose what we get to focus on. And we can choose to focus on the goal that we want to focus on. So how is that focus that you are speaking about, about how you want the world to look and your role in that, how is that currently carrying you through whatever life's challenges you're experiencing? I think the biggest piece for me is what's today? What is today going to look like? What am I doing today? Sometimes what I'm doing today is, you know, I need to sleep in. I'm really, really, really tired. And one of the luxuries of being a bubby is that I get some more discretionary time. And sometimes that's what I need to do for spiritually and, and so on, is that I need to make sure that I, that I get some more sleep. And I'm very grateful for those opportunities. But really the idea that My focus, I'm going to have the most impact for myself and for anybody else if I look at what can I do? What is expected of me? Sometimes it's action and sometimes it can be the biggest challenge. It's attitude. What attitude am I bringing here? I have found so many times in my own experience when I've had to express some of these ideas because one thing I know for sure that people are dealing with stuff. Everybody has something. Some people have a lot of things. And chas that I'm not saying that my experiences should be, it's not chalela, a manual for tragedies. But if we're talking about something that we have resources that are so rich that can even help a person in, in our circumstances, 
then how much more so can it help us over the speed bumps of life? Every day is a beginning. And every day, that question of what can I do? Somebody, you know, like the questions that we ask ourselves, any kind of a why question is dangerous. It's a loaded question. Because I know for myself, falling into the pattern of blaming myself for everything and anything. And it's, you know, it, it, it's because I'm so, and I have a whole list of, you know, whatever ways of beating myself up. And realizing from things that I learned that that's pure yetahar. It's pure yetahar. There is nothing beneficial in beating yourself up. If we have something to, that we have to fix, so, okay, sit down and figure out what you need to fix and how are you going to go about it and tiny baby steps and work on doing that. But in general, that pattern of I'm so bad and I'm so bad and blaming myself, that's all part of the why. I'm trying to deal with why is this happening to me? Oh, it's happening because I'm so terrible. Uh, uh, uh. We don't have the data. Don't go there. Because basically, in one form or another, it is a victim psychology. It is a victim frame of mind. And the frame of mind of what can I do? is empowering, and that's a survivor mentality, and it's a thriver mentality. It can help you grow. And noticing that when I was doing that, that pattern of beating myself up and just, okay, stop. Don't do it because it's wrong. Nobody's saying what you are or aren't. Just leave it alone. Come back to it at another time. It's a whole different experience. I love how you emphasized what am I doing today? Because I think that the idea of experiencing your life and not bypassing the challenges, but still being able to remain focused on your integral part of the mission of the world can only happen when you just focus on today. I think it's so powerful to hear someone with your life experience speak about it in this way, because if you were getting caught up on what happened yesterday, we can't really fully handle the extent of our difficult experiences. And those become debilitating when you don't have that forward focusing lens like you do, which I think is incredible, like that focus on something bigger that you're working towards. But I try to. You try to. But I try. <laughs> Some days you sleep in. <laughs> you had asked me about with, with my experiences and there was an experience with Shlaimi, which was really in the last week of his life. And he was having a, a pretty rough time of it that last week, especially. And I was changing a dressing uh, that he had. I had been doing it for two years. It was not dangerous and it was not painful. But I, he was very keenly aware of the whole thing because, you know, this is sterile and this is contaminated. He didn't want me to talk to anybody because I'll get distracted. Wow. But he would be anxious, but I knew it wasn't physically painful. And I was changing it. And he burst out at me, it's not fair. He was six and a few months old. Wow. It's not fair. And I had made myself a promise before any of this happened that I, I will never lie to my child. But I don't always have to tell them the whole truth. What do I say? And the only thing that I could think to say was, you're right. The Ebishtah doesn't want children or grown-ups to have this medical device that was planted in his body that we were taking care of for two years, or to need them, or to have a bayuda, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But right now we're in Golis. 
And in Goa, sometimes things like this have happened. And he scrunched up his face. You know, he burst out like he yelled out, this Goa stinks. And I have repeated that story a million times. And so much of the negativity in the world falls into the category we're in ghosts. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And when it comes to a very important lesson that I had with this was talking about Yasef and Benjamin when they met each other and they both cried. And the explanation that's given, Yasef cried for the Chorban that would happen in Benjamin's territory with the Besamikdash, and Benjamin cried with the Chorban that would happen in Yasef's ter- territory with the Mishkan. And the obvious question, why are they crying about each other's Chorban? And very, maybe not as obvious answer, but once you see it, you can't see it any other way. Because when it comes to one's own khurban, when it comes to one's own challenge, the question has to be, what do I do? What do I do? What action do I take? How do I fix things? I have to be focused forward on what do I do? When it comes to somebody else's khurban, then I have to do everything that I can. I have to do everything that I can to take it away. And that can include crying. And that can include yelling at the Yelling at the Ebishter for myself, that's, you know, got to be careful. Yelling at the Ebishter was haste, what, that's what Adma say is. How are you letting people suffer like this? What's going on? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. With all of the righteous indignation and everything else, we're on very sure footing when we're talking about somebody else. When we're talking about ourselves, we have to be careful because we don't want to be distracted from what is needed of me. What do I need to do? Not to say that people don't cry. There's place for that also. But what I'm saying is that the main focus of response to a challenge is what can I bring? What can I do? What is being asked of me? And the Abishter should help that the challenges should be healthy and happy and with everybody, you know, we can experience, we should have, you know, Mashiach with the normal world. And the Rebbe spoke so much about the personal gi'ur, that everybody in our own lives, that we should be able to experience that and experience life in that way. And and from that perspective, do what we have to do. So ending off, I'd love for you to share any practical advice you have for us on keeping your eyes on the goal when the obstacle feels like it's obstructing the view of the goal. (laughs) And it's hard to keep your eye on the goal because the obstacle is looming so large. You mentioned you don't want to overindulge in tears for yourself because it will distract you from the goal, which is your mission in this world. And I'm wondering when someone is just experiencing such intense tidal waves of emotion because of whatever obstacles they're experiencing. And sometimes, as you mentioned, obstacles could be from really beautiful, healthy things in life that could still be really challenging for people. How can we maintain our eye on that goal when the obstacle feels like it's literally obstructing our view? So there's a saying, and it has its place. It was actually a version of it was in in the Hayyam Yem of the day that that Shlaini passed away. But the saying is something that many people experience, unfortunately, in a very bitter way. And I'm allergic to bitter, by the way. I just, that I know, stay away from bitter. Anger may be, sadness may be, tears may be, but bitter is toxic. But that saying that many people struggle with, now we're not, not talking tragedies, just in life. God only gives you what you can bear. 
God only gives you a, a burden that you can carry, but God doesn't come. The, the expression that I was quoting from a Gemara, and many people are very, very bitter about it. And I'm picking on, on that one because I think it's important to tease it apart for the good that's in it and to know what the pitfall is. The negative aspect of it is this is never something to say to somebody else. We don't justify somebody else's burdens. Maybe their burden is your opportunity to help them with it. Maybe the fact that you're witnessing it is not to say, oh, yeah, fine, you know. They can handle there, it. So you can handle it. That's one thing. And the other thing, it's like, and you can't do anything, whatever. You'll figure out something that you can do. But it's not something to tell somebody, you know, oh, this is going to give you. And people have been very, very hurt by that idea. So that's the first thing. Be careful, super careful on applying it to somebody else. If you apply it to yourself, or if a student of yours approaches you, give me guidance and say, taking this idea, how do we deal with it? So I want to say one thing is that the first thing, when we say that Ebershter doesn't come to us with a load that's too heavy, a load that we can't handle, it doesn't mean that the solution and the response is just going to bubble up from us and we're going to have it. The resources are there. You have to talk to him. And if you're in a midbar, you have to get yourself out of the midbar. And now I'm oversimplifying that the root where, where you are, that the Ebershter put you there, because that's part of your journey of coming back to him. But where you are, so yeah, you have to take initiative. There are so many ways to access learning. One of my most important decisions of my life was to stop putting labels on myself or any trying for anybody else, but at least for myself. Oh, I'm not that type. I'm not that type. And if I ever tried to do something that I wasn't doing that, oh, then from then on, she became that type. Find a place that you're comfortable to learn. You don't feel that you can learn in Hebrew, learn in English. You can't learn from a safer directly. Chabad.org is one of the most incredible resources. You find an author that you love and just keep going. There are all these podcasts. There's such a wealth of accessible knowledge. Know yourself, know how you learn, but you have to take the responsibility to find it. It can't be something that somebody else, you can get a teacher, yeah, for sure, but make it, own it. I was going to say at the beginning that my favorite, it's not a translation, but the application of L'Chatchila River, you got this, you got this. It's here, it's us, It's we can do it. And being able to own that I have this, I have the ability to start again, to make a new beginning. Everything that happened before can only be, it's going to help me. If it's a good thing, it'll help me with the strength. And Baruch Hashem, I have a lot of good things that I was given. And if it's a negative thing, so I hope that I'll be able to extract from that the energy that it should propel me forward. But the main thing is, where am I going? And to know that the Eibishter is, it's a big thing to struggle with, at least for me it was, and I can't say in the past tense, it's an ongoing thing of feeling the Eibishter's love, feeling the Eibishter's care. It's a lifetime work, and the Eibishter should make it easy. I mean, stay focused on where you're going. And what we want to see. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. for the opportunity. Where are you going? 
What do you want to tap into in this lifetime? Is it joy? Purpose? A connection to God? What obstacles are standing in your way? Sometimes, when faced with an obstacle, our instinct is to poke tunnels through it, trying to find a way to pass. We become very consumed with the challenge and focus a lot of our energy on it. What would happen if we took a fraction of the energy we focused on our challenges and channeled them instead towards our growth? Our challenges shrink as we grow beyond them. L'chatchila a river. To begin with, focus forward, upward, towards the goal. Some days the obstacles are just heavy and we don't have energy to jump. But on those days, can you summon an ounce of energy to focus on the goal? Can you look towards the horizon to where you want to go? Elokai zakinina betoratcha uvimitzotecha lechaberet nishmati tamidecha mechaber mechaber. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find me on Instagram at humanandholy or via email at humanandholy at gmail New episodes of the podcast come out every single Sunday morning. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode and could take a quick second to leave a rating or review, it means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs>